This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Climate Action Show. My name is Vivian Langford, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation from whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation where we can be heard at Radio Skid Row. Welcome to this sixth and final event in the Reset 21 forum series where we are focused on solving climate change, the emergency that we face and building on the significant momentum and energy around last year's 2020 Climate Emergency Summit. We are at the Melbourne lockdown end of the summit, folks, and in a global pandemic, we have, of course, become adept at pirouetting events, putting on our ballet shoes and pirouetting events into a live stream. So thank you, wherever you join us, uh, for joining us in this live stream event tonight. It is going to be a cracker. My name is Natasha Mitchell. I'm a science journalist and I am joining you from a kitchen table here on the land of the Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong peoples of the Eastern Kulin Nation. There is no climate solution without your ongoing leadership and knowledge in the driver's seat. Thank you for having us on your land. And the driver's seat will, of course, be a super affordable electric car. The organising team would love to thank major partners, City of Melbourne, RMIT University, Breakthrough National Centre for Climate Restoration and the Safe Climate Fund, and the Capital Theatre, which of course is going to host us live tonight, but instead we're here on live stream. Our session tonight, the Below Zero 2030 Emergency Action for Negative Emissions. Emergency action, that means now. That means treating climate change like we are treating this pandemic. In fact, it might mean, as you're going to hear from our speakers, helping us to rebuild after this pandemic by turning to climate change as an opportunity for economic, societal change. Negative emissions, that means we need to reach a point soon where we have not only dramatically reduced emissions to zero, within the next 10 years, 10 years. But we are also needing to pull out the carbon that we have already overcommitted to the atmosphere and which will spin us out well beyond two degrees. So we need to aim for net zero and then some negative emissions. So what we want to talk about tonight with three fantastic speakers are the top technological disruptions the rapidly deployed economic and social innovations that will get us to zero in the next 10 years. And then what will it take to achieve drawdown of carbon globally at a monumental and rapid scale? Now, the great thing is that our three speakers have done some heavy duty thinking, modelling. They've put numbers to this. They've thought through what the next five and 10 years might look like. Our keynote speaker tonight is Drumroll, a big thinker with an eye for detail, Dr Saul Griffiths, who will make a moonshot, a war effort style pitch to get us where we need to be. Saul is an Australian-American engineer, inventor, serial entrepreneur. He's a father. He is a founder and chief scientist at Rewiring America, a coalition to address climate change and jumpstart the economy by pretty much electrifying everything. He's founder and chief scientist at Other Lab. They're an independent R&D lab. And through that, he helps government agencies and Fortune 500 companies and a whole lot more understand energy infrastructure and develop new technologies for deep decarbonisation and much more. My name is Saul Griffith. I'm actually now living, thanks to COVID, uh, in Wollongong. My plan at the original, at the beginning of last year was to move to Washington DC in March. That was, that plan ended in late February. Uh, I know I was going to be doing a year walking the hill and working, trying to engage with American politicians on both sides to rewire America. Uh, but today I'm going to 
talk to you about what we learned while doing a lot of that work that was virtual, as it turned out last year, and I'm going to try and put it in the Australian context and how do you decarbonise Australia really quickly? How do we bend the curve of climate change and stay within the infrastructure limit, which implies a temperature? And then that you, for that, you need to know what sort of temperature do you want to hit. And here are the 2100 warming projections that we have um, based on you know, the... Paris pledges and targets is a, will, might give us a two and a half to 2.8 degree outcome, even though two degree was the goal and one and a half degree is where we would really like to go. What is the cause of all those emissions? These are CO2 emissions by sector and type. So it's a little bit of our land use and our waste and landfill. It's industrial emissions like refrigerants and steel, but the giant majority, uh, 85%, is uh, combustion of fossil fuels. I like to think this is where we are at on climate. We're close to being out of wind, but we might just be a decade late. So it's at retail. It's nearly affordable now for the solutions, just not quite. And our climate emergency and awareness ambition is rising. Unfortunately, they meet a little too far out. So how do we bring that forward is the question. The emissions from machines that exist today alone, so if we build no more machines to burn any more fossil fuels and just let the existing ones burn them out through their lifetime, that takes us to about 1.8 degrees, uh, probably closer to two. So um, the politically possible is still trumping what is technically necessary. What is technically necessary is as quickly as possible to get to a, a, a position where we have a 100% adoption rate of clean technology. What does that 100% adoption rate mean? It means every next vehicle that someone buys is an electric vehicle, Every next furnace that someone buys is an electric heat pump powered by renewable electricity. Imagine electrifying everything at the speed we saw the cell phones unroll. But first, a bit of history. 1970 was the first energy crisis. And in fact, at that time, we didn't really even have energy data. So Richard Nixon, in fact, started the Energy Information Agency in the U.S., and the Department of Energy and tasked them with figuring out what the problem was. And they sort of divided the problem into two sides, supply, which is where you get your energy from, and demand, which is what you use it for. We don't think deeply enough about the demand side. So the oil crisis was the supply side problem, 15% shortage of oil because of the, the Middle East uh, embargo. And so they thought the answer was to become 15% more efficient. That gave us cafe fuel standards, and that gave us Energy Star appliances, uh, which is basically fuel economy for your car and for your furnace or your cooktop, but that's not nearly enough. So in 2019, we actually, or 2018, with the Department of Energy, looked at all possible energy flows in incredible detail for the U.S. economy, but we could actually tell you how much energy is used to move waste and scrap, how much is energy is used in slaughterhouses and, and chicken farms, uh, incredible detail through the whole economy. With that view, you can now start running decarbonization scenarios with great, great detail. And what you can say is demand-side electrification changes everything. So this is a pretty remarkable result. If you remember, the environmentalist movement grew up with that oil crisis. Earth Day, first Earth Day was 1970. And so they inherited this efficiency, save 15%, make more efficient cars, make more efficient uh, appliances narrative from that, um, that 1970s narrative. But that's not what we need now. We need complete transformation. So it turns out if we generated all of our electricity without fossil fuels, you'd save 25% of the emissions or of the energy. You eliminate that energy. If you electrify the vehicle fleet, you, you um, eliminate another 16% of your energy needs. If you electrify the heat in homes, another 6 or 7%. This is a sort of an incredible news story that's not really sung enough. If we don't think about efficiency, which is the 1970s narrative, and we think about a 2020s narrative of electrification of everything, you need less than half of the energy you thought you did to run the economy. This is not shrinking homes. This is not shrinking cars. This is the same homes, the same cars, electrified. Um, demand must change as fast as supply. So let's go into the details of that demand. I'm going to look from the household out. Too often we have abstract climate conversations about coal plants and export industries, but really let's talk about how it impacts you. Most likely, if, if most Australian houses are like American houses, there's 1.8 cars in the garage, it's 2.6 people living in the house, it's run on fossil fuels for the heating, there's natural gas probably running the cooking and, and maybe the hot water, um, and 
because of that, you spend a lot of money on fossil fuels. In Australia, it's about $6,000 a year per family. In America, it's about $4,500 US dollars. The average American family spends more on gasoline than it does on fresh food. It spends more on electricity than it does on education and more on natural gas than it does on dentistry. So it's a significant impact to the average household whose average after-tax income is 60 grand. By, by the prices, we will see batteries, wind and solar and grid electricity in 2024 in the U.S., you would be saving $1,000 per home in the U.S. and by about 2028, about $2,500 per home per year on their energy if we could make the transition to completely electrified homes. We just did the study cursorily for, the, for Australia and you would see similar results. So with rooftop solar providing half your energy, electrified vehicles in the Australian garages and driveways uh, with electrification, heat and cooking, the average Australian household saved $2,000 a year. That adds up to $20 billion per year in total savings to households. That's a significant number, and I want you to think about it. And you want to think about why don't we have that conversation in Australia? That's because Australia's energy flow diagram looks like this. It is completely dominated by that giant grey bar at the top, which is our energy exports. So everything else we do is below that. That's the domestic economy and grey is the export economy. We export 600% of the energy we use domestically. Those fossil exports import $80 billion and makes a huge lobbying industry that's not really helping us here. But what they never mention when they talk about our coal and liquid natural gas exports is we use nearly half of that money to buy oil. So this is why the, the conversation about electric vehicles in Australia is so dysfunctional. So that is, fixes half the problem. So think, but think about that $20 billion we would be saving in households. If we're already in a position to be net positive, but Australia hasn't played nicely. We, we fudged the IPCC by pushing negative emissions and excluding exports from the accounting. So we don't do true accounting which is the bad side of what Australia has done. The good side is we're leading the world in rooftop solar. The, the training and certification programs here have us at a dollar a watt installed. That is the envy of the world. In America, it's $3 a watt. So when I give this talk in America and I'm angry, I say Australians are great. They did solar right. But we're failing on electric vehicles. We're failing on electrifying heat. We are not yet realizing the economic benefits that we could for the household. It sort of shocks me that a party from uh, no, neither party has yet latched on to making this a retail political conversation about the Australian family and saving the family in Geelong or Penrith or Parramatta $2,000 a year while decarbonizing. I think we can and should lead the world in decarbonizing and we should save money while doing it. And I'm going to go out with a, a little bit of a radical idea, but with some data. This is vehicle age distributed by household income. And no surprises, the wealthier your household, the newer your vehicles. And you can actually map that to electric vehicles. So for households with $300,000 income or more, there's a 70% chance their next car is electric. But for the median household, it's about 25%. The reality is that the homes that can afford to decarbonize today, the energy prices don't matter. The homes for which the savings really matter, can't afford to decarbonize. The reason I used the word infrastructure earlier in the conversation is to tie this to a pretty radical idea that was developed by Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1930, which is he invented the modern home loan. So in 1936, to stimulate America out of the economic problems of the Great Depression, they created Fannie Mae, which was the government promising to help guarantee banks providing financing to homes for 25-year loans. That was a hugely radical um, move, in effect declaring the American suburbs uh, national infrastructure, by which they created the largest pool of capital the world has ever seen, still today. And honestly, that's the, the thing we need to have. The future is a competition between fuels and finance. If we could finance these upgrades to all of our homes, we can decarbonize. And then the cost depends upon the interest rate, which is why it's important for the government to play nicely and guarantee low interest rates. And, it, and then we have to make the finance available to all families. If only the wealthiest 50% of families can afford this, we do not solve climate change and we perpetuate inequities. Done well with low cost financing, 
Uh, we could repair some of our old injustices as well. This is how we could rewire Australia, and I can't wait with you all to change the dialogue here and have Australians overthrow both sides of the politics until some new party arises who's going to fix this at the speed and scale we need. Fantastic. Saul Griffith. Yes, and you can read um, in great detail in Saul's uh, new book, Rewiring America, and look at some of those models that he's developed with colleagues. And the thing about reading Saul's work is that it really does make you believe and understand that it is possible to decarbonise an economy if the will is there. So we'll discuss that further. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth, and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare, spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people, and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. Heidi Lee is CEO of Beyond Zero Emissions, where she is working with the manufacturing sector amongst others, to electrify Australian factories and power them with renewables. A former architect, Heidi has a long history with Beyond Zero Emissions and the Zero Carbon Australia collaboration. She's worked on all sorts of projects, both with and beyond Beyond Zero Emissions, uh, but including project managing Beyond Zero's uh, 2013 plan to decarbonise all of Australia's buildings. She's going to present to you of the tidbits from a very ambitious plan, and it's a staggering read, I commend it to you, the Million Jobs Plan, launched last year uh, with much fanfare from uh, all sorts of people from the corporate sector, which was interesting to see. So please welcome to your virtual stage, Heidi Lee. Thank you so much, Natasha. It's a real pleasure to be here tonight. I'm sorry we can't all be together in the Capitol Theatre as well as streaming into your lounge room, but this is a really fantastic way to spend a Tuesday. So I'm joining you tonight from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people here and pay my respects to elders past, present and those emerging. Um, as Natasha said in my intro, Beyond Zero Emissions is something I've been a part of for a long time. We are an energy think tank. We show how Australia is going to prosper in this transition to zero emissions. This isn't about sacrifice. This is about how wonderful it's going to be. And I think that Saul's given us a taste of that by diving into all the benefits that you get in your home when you electrify and power everything with renewable energy. So if you have not heard about Beyond Zero Emissions, we've been around for about 10 years and we've written decarbonisation plans for every sector of the economy from stationary energy and buildings and transport and even a land use paper. And most recently, our work was focusing on the um, manufacturing sector. We work with zero carbon communities, community groups all around Australia, and we've also published three regional decarbonisation plans that kind of take these big ideas out of our sector-based research and hone them in on communities that are most impacted by a fossil fuel transition and look for where the opportunities are in those same places for the workforce and for the local economy to thrive. So last year, in the midst of COVID, we, we did our most, uh, most high-profile piece yet, and that, that was the Million Jobs Plan. Um, it is a massive collaboration. It's an ongoing piece of work. This brought together energy experts, engineers, our communities and investors and, and the public sector, private sector, and all of that work 
showed how with the right government support and private sector getting involved, we can create 1.8 million jobs over the next five years. Most of these, most of these would be high quality jobs and ones that all set up our workforce and our economy and our infrastructure to accelerate this transition to a zero emissions economy and put us on the path to becoming a renewable energy superpower. So the highlights out of that project, 940,000 jobs in new buildings and home energy retrofits, 230 in clean manufacturing and mining, 200 in land regen, 140,000 in sustainable transport, and all of this underpinned by about 200,000 jobs in delivering fast-tracking 90 kilowatts of renewable energy transmission and associated storage. So that is the highlights. That's the good news story that comes on the other side of the types of experiences that we're having now in the midst of COVID. Former Treasury economist Chris Murphy did an independent review of our work and found that the Million Jobs Plan, as we described, it's going to boost private investment by $25 billion annually. That's about 2% of GDP. Increases real wages by about 1%. Um, and does a bunch of other really great things for the economy, for workers. The summary line I liked the best, I wrote it down here, the Million Jobs Plan delivers results almost immediately and its benefits persist for many years. So when you can find an independent economic review of our work that tells us that this is a great idea, not just today, but into the future, that's the kind of inspiration we take to keep going with this work. The response in public, as Natasha said, has been pretty incredible. We've had significant engagement with the federal government and our work's been profiled in conservative and progressive media and our network of supporters has really um, exploded. So we've been able to see the impact that putting out a good news story like this at a time when we really need it and weaving together the opportunities of a situation, of a really tough situation, showing what that can do. So while we do think the government's moving in the right direction, we need to go faster and there's a whole lot more we can do. So the ongoing work that we're doing with the Million Jobs Plan is basically reaching out to communities as we did through the creation of our Million Jobs Report and our project analysis piece that we did afterwards. That outreach is ongoing. So right now we have, we're looking at like hundreds of really great ideas that have come to us, not just from a a standalone research team that, sit, that sits outside of the community, but from our distributed network of research volunteers and communicators and outreach stuff, these people are all through Australian communities and towns. There's one near you, no doubt. Out of those big ideas that came from all across Australia, I'm going to talk to you about four themes, and they kind of dovetail, Saul, with some of the stuff that you raised, and I'm sure, Justin, a bit of a prelude to what you're going to talk about too. So the four themes that I'm going to talk about, Theme number one is that the sun and the wind can power heavy industry. Theme number two, we can make all electric transport right here in Australia. Number three is about turbine manufacturing. And number four is turning waste into steel and just about anything you like. So these are real projects that we get to go out and see because when you go and ask, put the call out and say, send us your great ideas, people respond and they've responded in a really big way. So first of all, we're going to talk about the sun and the wind powering heavy industry. So most manufacturing processes, as you know, they require very high temperature heat, which is usually generated by burning fossil fuels. However, in our 2018 electrifying industry report, that showed that you could transition just about any of those industrial heat processes to 100% um, to all electric and then 100% renewable energy. So we're looking in our million jobs plan at a five-year program to electrify Australian industry, um, create a large workforce of designers and engineers and technicians, and that alone delivering around 12,000 ongoing jobs around the country. So this is the upside to actually aggressively attacking this problem and saying we can do this. So one example that I really like is a small company called MGA Thermal. They can help us shift to renewable energy by providing a new way to store that energy as heat. That's clean, that's economical, it's scalable. They basically make thermal bricks, thermal blocks, and they stack them into insulated storage tanks, and that stores heat at about 600 degrees Celsius, which is a useful temperature for industrial heat processes and even to put 
inside power station underneath the turbines. So you can use this kind of technology, storing energy as heat, to make old coal-fired power stations powered with renewable energy. If you charge your bricks with solar power during the day, these bricks will make steam overnight and power these turbines. And they're actually looking at a couple of um, opportunities in the Hunter Valley to start to road test that technology um, with old power stations. So that's a really exciting one. Scene number two, we're going to make all electric transport here in Australia. We heard about the benefits why uh, from an energy point of view, but it's also, it's cleaner, it's quieter, it's less polluting in the streets, and it costs less to run when powered by renewables. If we electrified all land transport in Australia, we would increase electricity demand by about a third while drastically reducing the need for imported oil. So this boosts our fuel security and takes our overall emissions down by around 15%. So a huge opportunity here. If in the next five years we chose just to electrify public transport buses, we could deliver 19,000 jobs. If we wanted to, we could go further. We could get more jobs. We could be making the batteries for them. We could be assembling the all-electric um, engines here in, the, in buses, but also in trucks and cars. And so we could, we could really take that industry to the next level here in Australia. And we think one way to spark that is to make that commitment to electrify every bus, every public transport bus in the country. Theme number three, and I think a favourite among many people on the call tonight, will be the turbine manufacturing story. Most of the cost of wind farm development relates to the purchase of the turbines. Turbine manufacturing, it's really labour intensive and large turbine manufacturers, they'll only make components locally once the market reaches a sufficient size. So at the moment, Australia doesn't have a lot of capacity to manufacture wind turbines, existing capacity. So right now we're missing out on the economic and employment opportunities that come from wind farm developments. But if we were to bring wind manufacturing jobs onshore, we could create over 9,000 jobs in the next five years. Many of them would be factory jobs with medium to low skill requirements. So a quick way to do this is to convert our existing disused factories, and it's already happened in Geelong, where part of the old Ford factory is now making components for Victorian wind farms. So wind turbine manufacturer Vestas has indicated that given significant demand, they would be able to expand their manufacturing in Australia. We can have a whole industry around this. My fourth theme for the night is turning waste into green steel. Australia is the world's largest exporter of iron, or but doesn't make much steel. Most new steel is made using coal, and this production causes 7% of global greenhouse gas emissions. If we combine Australia's exceptional resources in both iron ore and renewable energy, Australia can become a pioneer in making zero emissions steel. A green steel industry could create up to 25,000 manufacturing jobs or 37,000 if all of the iron were converted into steel. But the, the, uh, the project here that really caught my eye is one by Professor Veena Sajwala. She's the Director at the Centre of Sustainable Materials Research and Technology at UNSW. They are making a new generation of green materials, including those made primarily or almost entirely from waste. So they're really famous for their, their breakthrough thinking. Um, but one of the most exciting processes that I've seen and I've gone, I've gone and held in my hand is they make green steel out of old car tyres. So I was visiting the Mollycock factory in Newcastle uh, the year before last year, 2019, and that factory there is making, uh, pioneering her technology and looking to commercialise this. So you turn your car tyre into this kind of black lump, a very friendly, benign black lump, not like a lump of black coal, and this here creates uh, the carbon ingredient in green steel. So that's a really exciting development and one that Australia could start to pioneer either from our ex uh, extensive iron ore reserves or through looking at innovative ways to use our waste. I was asked by a federal politician recently whether it was about development or deployment. What's best? And I cannot stress my answer enough. It is you don't choose between development and employment, you do both. You do more, you do it faster. You commission new research and development into emerging technologies while at the same time deploying proven technologies at scale 
and speed. Over the next few months, BZE is really going to be focused very tightly on the manufacturing sector opportunities. We have designed a national program for renewable energy industrial precincts with our partners at WWF Australia. We are promoting clusters of manufacturing facilities powered by 100% affordable, reliable, renewable energy and making clean green hydrogen that we can export to rapidly decarbonise the global markets. And export's really important, as Saul named. We need to address our export economy at the same time as decarbonise our domestic economy. The precinct approach is going to deliver huge efficiencies of scale, and when it's designed well, this can also provide reliability services that are so important to a renewable energy grid. So these four themes are just a small sample of really big opportunities that we're going to set us on a path to a zero emissions future in as soon as the next 10 years. That was my intro for tonight. I'm really looking forward to questions and hearing from Justin next. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains, and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. So we've gone kind of from the energy inside your household, the energy in manufacturing, now we're flowing on into landscape scale interventions. And Justin Borvitz is Professor of Biology at the Australian National University via the University of California, San Diego and the Salk Institute and the University of, well, other universities as well. He's one of Australia's foremost experts on genetics, plant biology and soils, three of my favourite topics. His work at the ANU Centre of Excellence in Plant Energy Biology uses genomics to study how landscapes and plants adapt to variable and changing climate. So this is vital, vital knowledge. And his team are also developing very interesting integrated systems, if you like, that better connect agriculture and natural ecosystems. So using natural processes to better draw out uh, carbon from the atmosphere, capture it and store it into soils and crops and other mechanisms. Uh, it's really powerful and interesting work, and I think you'll be very interested in the possibilities. Please welcome to our virtual stage here at Reset 21, Justin Borvitz. Thanks, Justin. Take it away. I'm speaking to you from uh, Ngunnawal country in Canberra, and um, we have a lot to learn still from uh, Indigenous people about how to better manage these dynamic and changing landscapes. Well, regenerative agriculture is very popular now. I'm on the board of Soils for Life and we're promoting this uh, among farmers around the world. It's, it's many things. I think it's not only being less bad and reducing emissions, especially methane and nitrous oxide, where agriculture is a big part of the problem, but drawing down uh, CO2 from the air and leaving it in soils, that's the drawdown part. And that's how we go from being a source to a sink for carbon. The way to integrate this, I call precision landscape regeneration. It's got a social component and we helped uh, with Heidi's uh, million jobs program, 200,000 jobs. I think could even be a million jobs in agriculture alone. if we get back out on the land and really work this, I think European governments are already looking for where they can buy drawdown overseas because they don't have enough space. Well, we have space and we can get to work to try to buy ourselves some time. It's a combination of trees and soils. Uh, and then uh, the storage is in biochar and uh, rock weathering, when I'll talk that about. So we are uh, taking for granted, really, that uh, land is cleaning up about a quarter of our emissions right now and the ocean another quarter. And so we can accelerate that. 
the land use change because agriculture keeps expanding into new areas is uh, is something that uh, improving our agricultural productivity will indirectly reduce that land use change. And then flipping agriculture to be a sink is what I'll talk about today. And this is also a big part of preserving biodiversity and regenerating natural landscapes because we shouldn't be farming in a lot of these areas that are unprotected. So what that means, if we think about this um, from a earth systems perspective, and my colleague Yoko Rowling here put up uh, with me and other partners a, a grand challenge called enhanced earth systems. And this is acknowledging first that the biosphere is 10 times larger than, than humanity's, maybe 12 times larger than humanity's footprint. It's a big cycle that moves huge amount of carbon. We actually cycle the whole atmosphere through vegetation and soils every five, six, seven years or so. Um, the problem is that it's not stored. We could increase photosynthesis by providing water nutrients and reduce the losses uh, by storing some of that uh, biomass as biochar and some of the soil carbon as, as weathered rocks. And I'll take you through. We also, of course, talked already about um, reducing our fossil fuels, but small tweaks in the earth system can deliver huge benefits. This is the earth cycling. If you haven't seen this nature's heartbeat, it's wonderful. I look Australia, you can see it's, it's not dead like the Sahara desert this year where you get really wet rains. The, there is quite a bit of green up. We're probably going to pull down as much carbon this year as we lost in the fires last year. That's not going to be stable as like the trees were, but it's the first step forward. And so we really need to take advantage of that. Our center works on this energy biology system. It's the largest metabolic system on the planet and produces all the resources we need out of thin air and, uh, and sunlight. The fuel one has not been the right direction. We want to stop giving uh, our food to cows and cars, but replace that with soil fertility and, uh, and better grazing pressure. So that's the drawdown piece that I'll talk about. So there's intensifying cycles of, uh, droughts, fires and floods, land clearing. You know, we're racing, uh, Brazil to, to beat the record in land clearing, but that's hopefully, uh, slowed and, and the, the regrowth will start. Agriculture, uh, diverts a lot of the net primary productivity of the planet and that just shows the potential that is there, the photosynthetic potential of our croplands that uh, are operating uh, below capacity, but we can reverse that. Agriculture is half of the planet. Most of that is grazing land, and in Australia, it's 90%. Uh, more than half of our continent is under hoof. Um, that's opportunity. That's an opportunity. Uh, we can go all the way to half earth, as E.O. Wilson says. So we need precision designs to do this. If we're going to make recommendations for farmers to flip, how would they do it? How would I do this on my farm? Or if I was thinking of investing and buying a piece of land, what would it take? How much would it cost? This is the finance versus fuels, uh, paradigm that we heard before, uh, I think it's a finance versus fertility. And we're starting to get a lot of demand. The international carbon market uh, in Sweden is $120 or something. In California, it's close to 80, but Australia, it's like 16 or 17, you know, so we're selling carbon overseas. We could really uh, boost this and we need to maximize our water, uh, light and mineral use efficiency to do it. Coupling four different technologies, they're known, they're well uh, understood. It's, it's trees uh, and soils, which is really the grass and the grass roots and good grazing management. Those are the capture solutions. The storage solutions above ground is to, to do biochar and below ground is, is rock weathering. So these all couple together and it's the interactions that need to be specified and modeled. The, uh, the plant system runs on Solar energy, we need to use the rain that we get, uh, better rehydration of farms. Most of these landscapes have uh, been severely altered from the original land clearing and they've never been uh, rebuilt. And some regenerative farmers are rehydrating their landscapes and starting to draw down lots of carbon. This can be modeled now. There's a lot of new 
modeling happening out of the Lawrence Livermore Labs and in California where I was on sabbatical earlier last year. So that's coming. New approaches in molecular biology to look at the microbiomes and soil microbiomes, which we really have never considered soil as being alive before. Um, but when the soil becomes active, it can process that carbon and leave it uh, in a more stable form. And this just kind of shows the modeling, how you can draw down carbon. Uh, and when you apply agricultural practices, you can do better than natural regeneration. A lot of times we do worse because we're focused on yield, yield, yield. But if we want to focus on on water use efficiency and carbon, the, that's wide open, new breeding targets. So that requires good agriculture, and we need to figure out how to integrate trees back into the landscape, pastures and crops together in different zones, link these into uh, networks and start to do agroforestry like it's done in France and silver pasture. This is up in Armadale. There's many examples and we just need maps uh, for people and models so they can know what their return on investment would be. And if we scale that out to the potential, like 100 million hectares in Australia of uh, crop and, and pasture and forestry land, we can do 10 tons uh, per hectare, which is a gig, gigaton of carbon. And at $100 a ton, which I'm sure the price in 2030 will be, it already is in many parts of the world now, that's $100 billion and a million jobs for people to all work on a square kilometer farm over the decade. It's the next step, I think, beyond the passive house and a way to reboot uh, Australia's primary industries have been part of the problem, and this is a flip to become part of the solution. So I'll leave it at that and look forward to the discussion. Thanks so much. Where do we start, people? And I guess, uh, and I will throw in a question at the very beginning because uh, from Anonymous, so what can we learn from historical examples of emergency responses like wartime speed and scale? And I think this is interesting because I, I wouldn't mind a comment from you all on here we are living through a global pandemic. It has been very interesting watching systems within the public health context mobilise, sometimes not aided by the politics of the time, but certainly we've mobilised. So what are you all thinking about in the context of this pandemic, about how we've mobilised around a pandemic and how we might mobilise around climate change? So you're all about looking at examples in American history particularly wartime I, examples where America mobilised effectively and your argument right. kind of gone out the window with the pandemic. I just finished a book for MIT Press called Electrify and it's really based around how quickly can you do this transition. For the big things that we need, so wind turbines, solar cells and batteries, we're about 16x off the production rate of solar to be providing the world with all of its energy. Uh, half from solar and we're about 12x off on wind energy from, um, in terms of production rate and we're about 10x off on batteries. So we need to double the size of each of those industries about three times to get there. That is an unprecedented level of, uh, doublings, although the industries are growing at 20, 10 to 20% each. We just need them to grow at 200%. And the analogy from World War II, so, Honestly, Churchill, Hitler walked into France, Churchill panicked, called Roosevelt and said, I need your help. We can't make this, and this war is being fought with machines. We need machines. So Franklin D. Roosevelt launched something called the Arsenal of Democracy. He went to Henry Ford and said, Henry Ford, can you please make me tanks and airplanes because this war is going to be won in the air and on the ground with machines. Henry Ford said, no, thanks, I'm still selling some to the Germans, so try someone else. So he went to a guy called Henry Knudsen, who led the arsenal of democracy and arranged for American industry to go from producing a few hundred airplanes a year in 1939 to 5,000 heavy bombers. By So that was production doubling every six months through the war. Yes. So um, realistically, if we really hit go and the world's financiers and governments got behind industrial scaling, we could probably get there in about five years to be a steady state. I think there's a really interesting, just a couple of anecdotes about this. People worry about what about the solar cells and the batteries and et cetera. Well, each Australian, each American has about 2,000 uh, kilograms of fossil fuels they burn each year as part of their um, their lifestyle. 
if we were making enough solar cells and they were lasting 25 years and enough wind turbines and they were lasting 30 years and enough batteries, we need about 50 kilograms a year per person of solar, 50 kilograms a year per person of wind, and about 75 kilograms a year per person of batteries, and you'd be there. And that sounds like a lot, but it's an awful lot less than the amount of fossil fuels we're finding, mining, refining, and transporting. And I think, so I think there's some good news stories there. The good news story is we can still stay under two degrees, but honestly, this is the last year to launch something as ambitious as the uh, arsenal of democracy. Heidi, uh, good answer. Heidi, your million jobs plan is interesting because it, 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 it is focused on trying to address multiple issues at once. So the backdrop is, yes, we want to reduce emissions. Yes, we want to contain global warming within one Actually, what, what you talk about in that report in all its detail is, well, okay, so how do we address social housing? There's a housing crisis in Australia. Um, how do we address onshore manufacturing? There's an issue with supply and security of supply at the moment in this pandemic. So the, it, it struck me that, that you're being multi-pronged and, in fact, the, the pandemic offers an opportunity. This is an opportunity for a pathway to economic recovery. I think so. I, I actually take the view that um, the most important thing that you can do and what you can learn from an emergency response or a pandemic response is the value of focus, everyone, focus. And I think that when we take that focus on the future that we have to deliver for a safe climate and, and for a thriving community and for a great, um, robust and fair economy, there is only one solution in this, and that is that it won't have carbon emissions in it. We won't be polluting because you cannot do that in a future scenario with all other things being good, right? It is a key element there. So it will be zero emissions. We take that focus and say, well, that's the future that will happen at some point. What we need to do now is move, bring that future forward in time. So instead of hitting that zero emissions target at 2050, by, by, we're long past any useful, you know, biosphere at that point. We need to be actually doing that as fast as we can. And what could we do if we just looked at that as our key focus over five years? What can you do? And you look at all of the really important contributors and players in our economy. You look at, you know, the efforts to, to address housing affordability and sustainability and home, the cost of living for Australians. You say, well, this is an opportunity. How can this also reduce emissions? And there's an answer in the problem itself. We think the same about manufacturing, the same about our transport system. We're particularly interested in the links in between these industries because that focus on delivering a zero emissions economy means that we have to be able to activate our manufacturing sector to make some of the heat pumps here, so that we can put them into the houses that need to replace their gas boilers so that they can have zero emissions heating. And that you just take that every step of the way. We're going to go upstream and those factories are going to make the wind turbines and the batteries that go into the equipment. So this, we think, is a real exercise in focus and in collaboration. Let's make what has to happen happen faster and just look at all the levers that are available to us right now um, to achieve that. Natasha, if, if, if I might, yeah, so. um, we did a similar study in the US, um, same scope, how do you decarbonize and the job creation? And, and you'd create 40 million jobs at peak, 25 million in the short term and 10 million new jobs sustained in the US to fully decarbonize. The interesting thing about those jobs is that the majority... Long, long and short term jobs. I mean, it's, it's easy to throw those figures around and I know you guys have done the back end modeling. But when you throw those thousands around, people are going, well, are they jobs that I would be able to do? And I'm not a manufacturer, so what can I contribute? Right. So or, I was just getting are to they that. Job, or are they jobs that will last long term? Absolutely Good. getting to that for you, <laughs> Natasha. So the majority of those jobs actually end up being in the built environment and they're unexportable jobs. The majority of the jobs are not actually going to be in solar and wind manufacturing. They're going to be in the installation and so they're going to look like tradies jobs. And they're going to be in every zip code or every postcode because it's going to be people driving recognizable white trucks, except they'll be electric, installing solar on your roof, putting heat pumps in your basement, putting car charges uh, in your garage, 
and double glazing your windows while they're at it. Um, so that's actually the giant, the giant drops driver here is in local economies and that is underappreciated and should be shouted from the rooftops. And then to use the historical analog again, the stimulus program that Franklin D. Roosevelt tried to finish the uh, Great Depression with wasn't hugely successful. It was, unemployment was at about 20%. They started various stimulus packages in 1936 and they got it down to about 17%. With um, everyone joining the war effort, unemployment went from 17% to about 1.2% in a, in a matter of one or two years. And so it was that level of war effort that really and focus that really made uh, the difference. And so that's the difference between sort of vague pussyfooting stimulus packages and actual real commitment and getting the job done on time. Do you see, Justin, I mean, certainly individual farmers are part of a growing movement around regenerative agriculture and this focus on, you know, topsoil health and um, rotating stock and, you know, there's a really rich conversation there. But do you see a role for big ag? Do you see evidence that big agriculture is wading into this space at scale? Oh, with their little toe, I think. Uh, General Mills <laughs> is committed to a million uh, acres in the U.S. of regen. Um, I think the grass-fed beef industry is trying to claim that they're, they're a big part of the solution. It's not the main thing, you know. I, lately, I feel like, Microsoft is probably buying carbon and committing to pulling down all their past emissions. And so that's going to be the, the tech companies are going to get into this. Um, they might end up buying out the old fossil fuel industries. It, it's interesting. Um, wow. Some, some, uh, you know, mid-size, I think venture cap new, uh, ag tech is, is dabbling in this stuff. Certainly, Precision agriculture, being smarter with fertilizer and using mixed varieties and, you know, elite varieties. There's a lot of good things. Um, so Microsoft becomes a farming company, hey? Everybody wants to get into it from food. I'm also kind of uh, bullish on these uh, synthetic uh, or at least plant-based burgers that are um, going to be displacing factory farms and feedlots and stuff like that too. Um, but they're sort of still locked in, I think, at the moment. Give them a few more years, or they'll they'll they tend to be kind of slow to um, <laughs> to change the business models. And this is why having a, a price on carbon will help incentivize that. Not enough, far, says Saul. And I, yeah, on, yeah. I, I was just going to say, as far as like emergency mobilization in the in the biotech space, like I think. Testing for COVID, we had to develop that, and now there's 300 million tests have been done or in the U.S. alone, and you can do that for soil testing too. Then that's coming. We're just doing that in the lab today. I think there's other, um, you know, disruptive technologies that are that are going to come faster at the scale. This, these doublings that Saul's talking about, and I think once we get the models and the satellites, you know, like Elon Musk put up more satellites now than all the governments combined, and so we're going to be able to track tons of carbon, individual trees on landscapes like never before, and that'll allow us to to make these changes and employ people. They'll be able to watch what's happening and better monitor and manage their land. And you'll be able to buy your food and know exactly where it comes from in the cities, like New Zealand already has that. Where does the wool sweater, what sheep did that come from? Was it a healthy farm or not? Was the grass green? It's simple questions. You'll be able to get that with a barcode. So, so that's I consumer end of things, but what about... That's the consumer end of things. What about the farm end of things? What do you think? You know, many farmers will say they're all already very stretched. Some are really going hard in on the regenerative agriculture focus. Some are really getting part of the soil carbon revolution. Um, but what does it it's take for farmers money. to see opportunity? I mean, you talk about virtuous cycles, for example, yeah, but yeah. once they start seeing the benefits then they it, kind of right now i think the they've got debt uh, you know the banks uh, payments and the markets international volatility so if, if they could have a little relief whether it's government drought relief or just some financing we have a partnership with national australia bank to try to incentivize regen and so they're looking at 10-year yield predictions that are looking like they're getting worse every year whether if you turn 
your practices, just like investing in renewables and solar, it takes money up front and then it pays off really quickly. And the same thing uh, in agriculture. And so we need some transitional finance and some stimulus and some instructions, you know, like it, it, you just say electrify. Well, not many builders know how to do that. And the one that built this house actually went broke. I had to finish it myself. <laughs> so we, have a, we have a lot of uh, training to do in this new area. Uh, and the yeah. finance, and then well, and there's another, the solutions are there's there. A, there's another sector, uh, training and research and education. But let's look and, at Natasha, the role on, of government. On, yeah. On you, you like historical analogs. So here's one that's not American, although it has a little bit of an American anecdote. Um, there is precedent for buying out fossil fuels. So America and England both had slave problems. America resolved it with a civil war that still has political hangovers today in the United States and endemic racism that's, that's challenging. In Britain, a politician called William Wilberforce, uh, led, uh, an effort, a successful effort to have the, uh, the banks loan enough money to the British government to buy out all of the slave owners. So he bought the freedom of all of the slaves. Now, that did give a lot of cash to some people who you could arguably say weren't great, uh, and it did take a long time. In fact, it was 2018, hundreds of years later, when those debts were finally paid off. But modern British banking system, uh, which really was revolutionary in the world, was sort of built on these principles. So there's, pre- there's precedence in financing to do this, the pre- precedent uh, in government, and, you know, maybe we should say so that. Say thank you to the fossil fuel industry for a hundred years of giving us the good life and then help capitalize them to get this done. Remember, it's 25 years after the founding of Tesla and they're producing a tiny fraction of electric vehicles. Startups will not and cannot get this done on the timeframe required. This has to be partnerships between startups and industries that are already at scale. So what role do you see for fossil fuel companies in particular? Because, you know, this is not the way the narrative has gone. And clearly we need a new narrative, don't we? We need to say every player needs a role. And fossil fuel companies have major agency in the way that climate change has been talked about and the way it has been um, addressed in up until now, sometimes in a, a really problematic can I, can way. I, can I yeah, Justin, yeah. Justin, yeah. Well, I've sat in the boardroom with some of the lobbyists of the earth sciences, uh, talking about, you know, what's the future of fossil fuel companies? Are they energy companies that are going to shift from non-renewable to renewable? Or are they carbon companies that are going to shift from digging it up to sucking it down? And they said, Oh, we're not sure yet. Probably some of both, you know, and they're going to wait until the, all the research is done, all the markets lined up and the laws have been changed and the hedge funds have, shifted and the shareholders are demanding it and then they'll they'll pivot um it's been my great privilege to read all of your work and um i hope that many others do because it's very detailed and very inspiring dr saul griffith founder and chief scientist of other lab and founder of rewiring america heidi lee ceo of beyond zero emissions and professor justin borvitz from the anu that rounds off the reset 21 forum series You've been listening to the Climate Action Show at Radio 3CR and Radio Skid Row. And thanks to Michaela and Raoul who helped us get this show to air. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. This is a message of solidarity for all the women out there from Think Again on 3CR. For all the women who still, after all this time, are underpaid and undervalued, who carry most of the burden of care and work, who live precariously and carry all the risk while others walk off with the gold. This is a message of solidarity for you because you are the true gold. You are not the loot to plunder by self-entitled born to rulers. So always know your value and remember together we are strong. 